Cryptocurrency and Bitcoin are a wild ride, folks, and I gotta tell you, I don't know a damn thing about it. So I decided to learn myself by talking with a gentleman who's been podcasting about it longer than I've been podcasting. And speaking of podcasting, it's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we were supposed to take a look at the iPhone 12 Pro. Well, that didn't happen, actually. Here's the thing. I said in an earlier show that I was going to use the iPhone until spring in order to relearn iOS and, you know, even removing iOS from the equation. There's a whole lot of phone here, and frankly, as a reviewer, I don't think I'm quite where I need to be in order to fully review this phone and do it justice. So we're reshuffling the schedule a bit, and here we are talking about cryptocurrency a week earlier than expected. And that's okay, because I had a great conversation with Adam B. Levine, who runs a whole podcast network about cryptocurrency. So believe me when I tell you, this is a great talk. Plus, reviews on Apple's M1 chip and the hardware it powers dropped this week, and there's so much there that we need to step aside and take some time to thoroughly look at just what the heck is up with this silicon. And we'll get to all that, but first, we have to check out the news of the week. Just one more thing before we get to the news. Next week's show is probably going to be short because... It's a really short week, so I'm going to be doing the news for, like, the weekend, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, but Thanksgiving weekend is after that, including Black Friday, so there's not a lot going on there except for a lot of people at Walmart punching each other in the face. Plus, I have a special feature that I'll be running, which will be cool, but... Honestly, probably not all that lengthy. The moral of the story is, it's going to be a short show, and while we're on the subject, the week of Christmas and New Year's, I'm taking it off. Now... Is it Bush League that I'm probably not going to have a show at all? Yes, but for the first time in ever, I have my own show, and I can set my own rules. And by the way, my birthday is also during that week, so CES craziness comes after that. You're going to have more than enough to get you by, so... I'm taking a week, folks. Sorry. Plus, I have an awesome new series coming in January, so everything will be awesome, I promise. But for now, let's get to the news. So you remember what last week when I said that the Trump administration... What? Oh, right, yeah, I, I forgot about... Do I really have to say it? All right, fine. Okay, I'll start again. So you remember last week when I said the lame duck Trump administration forgot to ban TikTok? Well, it turns out that they listened to my show because no sooner had I said it that the Treasury Department issued a statement that said, no, no, we totally didn't forget to ban TikTok. Why would you think we forgot to ban TikTok? We, um, just, um, oh, graciously, yes, graciously, very graciously, gave them a 15-day extension to bribe, I, I mean, divest its U.S. assets to, what was the deal again? Oh, never mind, they just got an extension. Right, right, right. Of course, an extension gracious. So it turns out that TikTok has until November 27th to figure out just what the hell the Trump administration wants or will settle for. Unfortunately, TikTok does not have the ability to deliver a different election result, which is really all Trump wants at this point. So they're going to have to settle for money and sticking it to the Chinese one last time before they out the door. So stay tuned to the benefit of a Dow TikTok account for as long as it lasts. 
SpaceX launched a crewed Dragon capsule en route to the ISS for the first time ever, and Elon Musk had to watch from home just like the rest of us. Musk, or Space Karen as some are calling him, took four different COVID-19 tests, two of which came back positive and two of which came up negative. Musk turned to Twitter because that's how Musk musks, and he tweeted to millions of his followers that something fishy was going on. How can he have it and not have it? Well, you see, Elon, it's because you were taking a rapid test and not the more reliable longer test. A doctor came on Twitter and helped calm Karen down and answer his questions. And that's a separate article, by the way. But the result was Elon had to watch the launch of his historic space capsule from home because of the pandemic that he earlier in the year called dumb. And that, kids, is called karma. Getting back to the launch, it was the first manned taxi flight toting NASA astronauts to the ISS. There were four, all told, and they made it just fine. And it's kind of funny that it took NASA this long to figure out that contractors could probably get astronauts to space a lot cheaper than they could. I mean, don't get me wrong, mad respect for building the OG rockets and getting men to the moon and all that, but folks, it's much easier when everyone else handles all the high explosives. Trust me, I've learned this from experience. You remember 17 years ago at the beginning of 2020 when we could all Zoom as much as we wanted? Well, since then, the unlimited time on Zoom has gone the way of the dodo, but other services like Google Meetups and Skype have kind of filled that void. Well, Zoom wants you to get all nostalgic for 25 years ago at the start of the pandemic when we were all unlimited Zooming with each other. So, for Thanksgiving Day, you'll be able to have Zoom turkey dinner with your family from around the globe, just like you did 35 years ago when all this started, which is nice. Realistically, I'm guessing the number of Zoom accounts has plummeted since restrictions eased up. But now that the fit is hitting the shan again, Zoom wants to remind you that they exist and would you pretty, pretty please pay for it so you can chat with your friends and family again. I get it. And for my family, Thanksgiving will be a four-person affair, unlike the 25-person blitzes we've had in the past. But I don't think we're going to be Zooming with other family. Most of my family is local, so we can pretty much, you know, see them whenever we want or... Not as the case may be. A lot of you have family in other cities and states, and you might actually look forward to Thanksgiving or other holidays to travel and see them, and I totally get that. That may be the case, but do yourselves a favor and your family a favor this year and just stay home. It's really not worth all the trouble, and hopefully things will be back to normal next year. Don't force it. Just stay home. Stay safe. This is my PSA to you, and please use Zoom. This podcast not brought to you by Zoom. Twitter rolled out fleets, or fleeting tweets, to the world this week on Android and iOS. And while I had originally resisted the idea of stories or fleets in the past, friend of the show, Daniel Bader, challenged all of us tech people to show off the home office. And in that sentence, you couldn't see it, but show off and office are very much in quotes. We'll talk more about that in a second. Fleets are stories carbon copied from Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and whoever the hell else copied stories. LinkedIn? I think LinkedIn has stories, right? Whatever. Everyone copies everyone. Fleets disappear after 24 hours, and now that it's Sunday, my fleet is gone, and you'll never see it. But don't be dismayed. As I mentioned, I have a TikTok account, and I have been kicking around the idea of showing off some behind-the-scenes stuff there, like, you know, how I do what I do. So I would suggest following my TikTok account if you're interested in such a thing. And if you're not, well, 
I have nothing further to say. Anyway, various things I show off would be my video table, my laptop, my microphone setup, general office space. I'll just be sure to dust better before I shoot next time. Long story. Anyway, that joke only makes sense if you saw my fleet, and if you didn't, it's gone now, so you can't, and that's why I don't like fleets. Getting back to those fleets, Twitter called fleets, quote, the perfect option for users who feel remorse about things that they posted. Now, I could make a joke here. It would be very easy to make a joke here. But honestly, I think Stephen Colbert said it best when he said, Just what Twitter needs. People saying things too awful to remain on Twitter. This week also saw the release of the final Chrome release of 2020, which boasts faster start times, faster load times, and more battery life, which is funny because I don't recall ever having used the terms Chrome, fast, or battery life in the same sentence, except that one time I said, Jesus, Chrome kills battery life fast. Let's just say I'm dubious about all those claims, so. But Google has introduced a faster way of doing things, like typing delete my history in the address bar when the cops or your wife is about to enter the room. That could be kind of cool. I mean the typing commands thing, not the cop entering the room thing. Anyway, Google said they'll soon be integrating cards into your home page. Cards will show you recently visited pages and related content on the web in order to help you pick up where you may have left off or find a web page you recently visited but can't find again. That could be handy, but then so is just leaving Chrome tabs open until you're done with them. So, you know, that one's kind of a push. OnePlus has always been really cool about catering to its community, except when that community asks for stuff like headphone jacks or IP ratings. Anyway, OnePlus recently solicited its core crowd in the OnePlus forums by asking for new feature ideas that they'd like to see in future iterations of Oxygen OS. OnePlus chose seven of those features to integrate into its Android skin going forward, and some of these things I can definitely get behind. One of them comes pretty much directly from LG, and that is to allow separate apps to have different volume levels, and that's awesome, by the way. Another is wireless file transfer between OnePlus phone and a computer. That'll be interesting to implement. Another is to take partial screenshots, and that's a really good one because it's often kind of a pain to take a screenshot and then crop out the information you don't want to share. I can definitely get on board with all of those. And they're all good ideas. You can see the full list at the link in the show notes, by the way, but more so, I like that OnePlus is still engaging with its core audience and answering their calls. Larger OEMs usually don't do that, so it's nice to see that OnePlus still has its small company roots, even though it's sitting at the big kid's table these days. If you think 2020 has sucked for you, it has really sucked for Huawei. Nothing has really gone right for the smartphone maker, except for... I mean, I can't say for sure that they're propaganda, but they sure as hell felt like a big load of propaganda when they were supposedly shipping hundreds of millions of Google-less phones earlier in the year. Anyway, insult just turned into injury as Huawei has sold off its Honor brand, citing, quote, persistent unavailability of technical elements needed for their mobile phone business due to U.S. sanctions. So it's selling off Honor, which is its highly successful budget and mid-range brand, to Shenzhen Shizen new information technology company, Limited, which is a consortium backed by, wait for it, the Chinese government. Um, what? (laughs) Once the sale is completed, Huawei says it'll have nothing to do with the brand, which, yeah, that's kind of how selling works. But what I don't understand is, 
how is this better? I mean, sure, it's not Huawei anymore, but it's still Chinese and it's still a government-backed consortium on top of it. The main reason the U.S. has a problem with Huawei is because they suspect ties to the Chinese government. So, what, now, Huawei is just removing all doubt? Look, I don't politic, and this doesn't make any sense to me at all. Pocket Now, the source for this story, VT Dubs, also points out that other Chinese OEMs such as Xiaomi, Oppo, and Vivo do not have restrictions or sanctions against them, but to be fair, Huawei does a lot of shady crap, and while there's no reason to suspect that other Chinese OEMs don't also do shady crap, Huawei just seems to get caught at it more frequently, so... Yeah... Anyway, how this Honor brand sell-off is going to make things better, I don't understand, but government's got a government, I guess. Amazon launched a new pharmacy delivery service this week, and what could possibly go wrong with that? Just at a time when people are starting to wonder if Amazon needs to get broken up, it goes and opens a pharmacy which is really just bad timing, Amazon. Some critics are quick to point out that this is just another set of data that Amazon will get its grubby little paws on and they're not thrilled and yeah, I can kind of see why. Especially if you start having your cholesterol medication filled by Amazon and suddenly treadmills and diet supplements start showing up on your suggested shopping list. Hmm, that could get super creepy super fast, but honestly, that's not even my biggest problem with this. My biggest problem is that this is yet another industry that Amazon wants to get into, and at first it'll seem great. But how long will it be until Amazon starts beating out other competitors until Amazon is all that's left? I get that Amazon wants to be your one-stop shop for everything, but honestly, given the government oversight, this just seems like really bad timing. Speaking of companies that probably should be broken up and why they should be broken up, this week Apple announced great news for pretty much everyone but its biggest critics, meaning Epic Games, Spotify, and that whole consortium. Apple will reduce its cut of App Store transactions to 15%, but only for small businesses. Now, Apple defines small business as anyone who makes less than $1 million per year. Apple is doing this to make itself seem more generous to indie app developers and to make itself look more attractive to antitrust regulators who have Apple in their crosshairs. And I get that, but I kind of have to agree with Tim Sweeney on this one. He says that this really just goes to prove that Apple's App Store rules are basically arbitrary and doesn't really do anything to alleviate the fact that the App Store is still in fact a monopoly. It just happens to be a much cheaper monopoly for those who can afford it less, which is nice, but that doesn't make it less of a monopoly. YouTube announced some changes to its terms of service, and what's really weird about that is it actually affects me and this podcast. I mean, not deeply, but still, I'm still kind of coming to the grips with the fact that I actually have a YouTube channel now. Anyway, the change to the terms indicates that YouTube may start playing ads before videos of creators not already in YouTube's partner program, also known as these people make us a crap ton of money and we really don't want to piss them off program. The thing is, those ads playing before small creators will not help those small creators at all because YouTube is not giving them any share of that revenue. And to be honest, all told, it really doesn't mean that much for a creator like me because I'll be missing out on, what, the .0056 cents of ad revenue I might get from that? But you know what happens when you take .0056 cents and multiply it by a few million creators who are still all small? Let's just say 100 million ads for argument's sake. 
that's $560,000, which, I mean, it's YouTube, so that's not a lot, but it's not a little either. Meanwhile, YouTube is cultivating free labor and making money off of them, and last I checked, that was kind of illegal, so I wonder what uh, the powers that be might say about that, Google. Just thinking out loud. And finally, Google rolled out some major changes for its payment service called, creatively enough, Google Pay. Specifically, it revamped the app to make it easier to send and receive money similar to PayPal or Venmo. But it also formed partnerships with a number of actual banks bringing Plex bank accounts if you should be so inclined. Basically, it sounds a lot like Apple Card, except that this is really just a bank account, not a titanium actual credit card. The focus of the new Google Pay app is to help make it easier to send money and gain insights into spending habits. Because Google is the search king, you can do searches through transactions for things like Italian restaurants if you want to see how often you ate at Portillo's, or Mexican restaurants if you want to know how often you went to Taco Bell. It can also help you find out how much you paid your doctor in copays because you eat like a slob, and seriously, stop that. Overall, this isn't a really major deal, but it makes Google Pay even more friendly, which is always a good way to suck you in. <clears throat> Sorry, I mean to help you out. So let's talk about Apple and that M1 chip. Reviews dropped this week, and by all reports from Pocket Now, The Verge, Wired, everyone is gawking at how amazing this chip is and the new hardware is. And I have to tell you, it's giving me some serious misgivings. And you can bet this will be a topic of conversation on the Doubting Thomas early next month. So stay tuned for that. Now, I want to approach this in three parts. First, my initial gut reaction, which will be mostly a recap of what we've already talked about. Then we'll dive into what the reviews are actually saying. Then we'll wrap up with my final conclusions and how they relate to me specifically and the tech space in general. First of all, and I talked about this a lot last week, so I might be repeating myself a little bit here, and sorry about that, but Apple introduced the M1 chip last week and announced three new pieces of hardware, the MacBook Air, the MacBook Pro, and the Mac Mini. All of them are running the M1 chip. Apple boasted loudly in general PR terms about how fast and how powerful these new computers were, but as they say, the proof is indeed in the pudding. So I spent the last week pretty much set that I'd be picking up a new Windows computer as my primary computing machine, and as I write this, I'm very close to making a final decision, so more on that next week. But then this week dropped, and reviews started pouring out, and holy crap balls, this thing screams! Everyone who has put fingers on this hardware has said that these chips are legitimately game-changing. And let me say that again, Game changing. Reviews of the MacBook Air are baller. Reviews of the MacBook Pro are ballerer. And reviews of the Mac Mini are, well, I admit I don't really care about the Mac Mini, so you're on your own there. Laptops are GTFO, bro. The Verge in particular had a lot to say about both devices. The main difference between the MacBook Pro and the MacBook Air is that the Pro has a fan, which is good, and a touch bar, which is still garbage. Both computers have complete dogs for webcams. The touch bar is still the touch bar, which is to say it's never really been that good. And of course, this is coming from someone who's never used a touch bar before, so take that for what you will. The iOS app integration is a major challenge, but since that's pretty much brand new, I consider that a wash because I didn't have it before, so it's not like I'm going to miss it now. But watching Dieter 
and unfortunately Neelay, review both of these devices, you can tell both are legitimately surprised at how well these laptops perform. They're genuinely blown away by what Apple is offering here, and that's fairly legit. Their main stance was that the fan was good for sustained performance pushing, but if you're not going to be doing anything more for like 10 minutes at a stretch, then the air is probably good enough. It's also worth mentioning that they did not have the base model for either laptop. Dieter's retailed for $1650 with an 8-core GPU, 16GB of RAM, and 1TB of storage, while Neelay had the same specs for his Pro at $1900. Now, it's very important to keep that in mind. FYI, the base specs for the Air, which will be the center of our conversation, starts at 8GB of RAM, a 7-core GPU, and 256GB of storage. So, they were decidedly not using base models, and frankly, neither should you. Or should you? First, some background. And generally, this is true for any product on the market. The base model exists not because literally anyone should use it, but because that way they can say the product starts at a stupid low price. It's frankly wasteful and not a good customer experience, but that's the reality we live in today. Am Malik has an in-depth look at the M1 and what it means for the future on his blog, Creatively Enough, called Am. Am looks at not only the M1 chip and its power, but also to the shift that it signals to computing in general. We're almost to a point where silicon is getting powerful enough that it can take on the various tasks that we do, while most of the work is offloaded to the cloud and peripherals. The computer that you bought five years ago is now being sold for $70 built inside a keyboard by Raspberry Pi, and... Hey, there's a nice callback to a previous episode. Now, to back that up, Am spoke with Apple execs to get the inside scoop on how this chip was developed. Take a look at the article in the show notes because it's seriously long, but the TLDR version is that Apple is thinking three years ahead, and they're aiming at where the computer industry will be, not where it is today. Honestly, I don't see it, but I'm not that kind of a guy who looks three years into the future. It's never been my strong suit, which is why I don't work for Apple. Over at Wired, they're leading their review with the subheading, Ditching Intel has removed the shackles from the laptop, unleashing a force to be reckoned with, and wow, rhetoric much? Once you get past that and dive into the review, there are some good thoughts there. The MacBook Air in particular was the subject of this review, and the most notable takeaway from the review is that the design of the MacBook Air released in March is basically the same as the one released today. And, and that's not really surprising, but Apple made basically no effort to upgrade the look <clears throat> or the ports of the new model, which is surprising. But yeah, it's a beast and it flies through everything just like everyone else had said. They also had the review model with eight cores of GPU, 16 gigs of RAM and a terabyte of storage. But now pocket now, they're a different conversation. Pocket now intentionally bought the base model for both the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro, $999 and $1299 respectively. They wanted to see what was up with these base models, and as it turns out, they're actually pretty awesome. On Wednesday, Jaime Rivera exported a 10-minute video full of motion graphics and everything in just under three minutes. A fully decked out MacBook Pro from a couple years ago did the same job in just 20 seconds less. So for those keeping score, a $5,000 MacBook Pro with a 64 gigabytes of RAM did the same job as a base model MacBook Air in 20 less seconds. Now, my math says that's roughly a 10% improvement over the MacBook Air for $4,000 extra dollars. Yow. 
which means that the 999 base model is probably actually good enough for just about everyone. The extra money for one extra GPU core and doubling the storage doesn't really seem worth it, except, yeah, I would totally need the extra storage because I'm a PC pack rat. But anyway, that's amazing. But what about running software? Oh, because it's ARM-based and all the awesome apps are built for Intel, so that must be the main problem, right? Nope. Rosetta 2 is the translation software that basically takes any x64 app and translates it to ARM. It does so smoothly and with very little stutter, and that is frankly amazing. Now, the aforementioned 4K speed test that Jaime ran was in Final Cut Pro, which of course is built for ARM architecture because it's Apple's own product. But still, by all reports, Rosetta 2 basically makes everything run seamlessly, which means you don't have to compromise in order to run into Apple's arms weeping. So that brings us back around to me and to you, but you know, mostly to me. Where does that leave us? Should I just go get a MacBook Pro and call it a day? Well, not really. Now, let me be clear here. When I'm speaking for the next couple of minutes, I'm speaking as a creator and I'm going to caveat that as well. So just, you know, try to keep up. I'm still going to get a Windows machine. As much as everyone is proclaiming to the heavens that Apple is amazing and Apple knows all, I'm just not ready to dive into those waters just yet. I don't doubt that the power is amazing, and frankly, the battery life is amazing, but I do doubt that all these reviewers and early adopters, and frankly, Apple themselves, have found all the bugs and all the flaws so far. In this, which will be my primary computer to do my primary job of creating for this podcast and YouTube channel, and, well, TikTok, well, you get the idea. My livelihood is too important to pick up a brand new piece of barely tested tech and say that this is my horse, let's go into battle. Now, I do not need that horse to die on me or throw me in the midst of barbarians, so I'm up to my armpits and death and I need to find another horse and fast. Maybe if my primary laptop wasn't on its last legs, I could afford to gamble, but now I can't afford to gamble, so I'm going to be going to Windows for better or for worse for at least the next year or so. And as a matter of fact, I've actually already bought my next computer, coming soon to an unboxing near you. And soon I'm going to record a feature for this podcast that breaks down what I got, and more importantly, why. It'll be similar to that vacation recording I did back in July. It's just an opportunity to get inside my head and see how things work in there and hopefully not get lost along the way because it's kind of dark. Not sure when that's coming, but the unboxing will probably go up in the next week or so, tops. Now, next year, when you're looking at Gen 2 or maybe a Gen, I don't know, 1.5, I can see myself picking up a MacBook. The computer that I bought is very heavy and doesn't have great battery life, so having a super portable machine as a travel backup is a compelling idea. You know, when we're actually able to travel again. I figure by this time next year, COVID will actually be more or less under control, maybe, or so we all pray. But that means that shows might start up again and travel will become a fairly decent part of my job again, or at least that's what I'm hoping beyond hope. But until then, most of my work will be done sitting at my desk with my laptop plugged in, so weight and battery life are not a big deal. So for now, I can definitely wait out Gen 1 and see how Gen 2 looks. And I'm sure a lot of bugs and a lot of foibles will have been addressed, and the hardware might actually get a 10 from The Verge. Do I recommend that you wait too? Sure. I mean, it really depends on what you want to do with it. If you're a creator like me, it's probably not a terrible idea to wait a bit longer. But if you don't plan to do much heavy lifting and you want to stay in the Apple ecosystem, then it's probably a safe bet to go ahead and pick one up.
My next guest on the podcast is a man of exquisite taste in first names, but that's not why he's on this podcast. He's here because he's been podcasting about cryptocurrency almost longer than I've been podcasting. From Bitcoin to Ethereum to Dogecoin, he is so much an expert in the field that he runs a podcast network of cryptocasts. And seeing as how I don't know how any of this works, I wanted to have a conversation with him to shed some light on the mysterious world of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Adam B. Levine, welcome to the podcast. Adam Dowd, thank you very much for having me. It's it's a pleasure to have you here. And actually, your your appearance on this podcast, at least when we're recording it, because this is going to go live later, but is is almost serendipitous because over the weekend, I was in a mall for probably the first time in 2020. And as I walked through the mall, I looked over to my right and I saw, of all things, a Bitcoin ATM. And, Bitcoin ATM. <laughs> and I just thought to myself... Well, first of all, in, in the Venn diagram of people that use cryptocurrency and people that shop at malls, I can't imagine there's a huge intersection there. <laughs> and people that use ATMs, I should say. I can't imagine there's a huge intersection there. But And, and second of all, I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm going to talk to Adam about this on Tuesday. I should bring this up. So <laughs> have you ever used a Bitcoin ATM? <laughs> You know, I actually have sitting behind me on my shelf one of the earliest Bitcoin ATMs ever created. That is amazing. Uh, <laughs> it has never been used, <laughs> which is pretty, you know, I mean, like, there, there's a real business model behind the Bitcoin ATM thing. Okay. But but the technology moves so fast sometimes. And I remember uh, I actually bought this from the guy who used to run... Uh, the uh, local bitcoins uh, project before that was sold to somebody else, and basically, local bitcoins was like Craigslist for if you wanted to buy or sell Bitcoin, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so this was like a way that you could then use the this like Craigslist esque network, and then also have kind of these ATM locations. And it doesn't look like an ATM at all. It looks like basically like a like a you know kind of not great metal safe that has like a little bill reader on the front and like a little tiny LCD screen. Okay. And uh, so I bought it. I got it delivered to me. And then like two weeks later, they sold the company and discontinued the product line. <laughs> it was just like, that's that's my experience with cryptocurrency in a nutshell, is the technology a lot of times just moves so fast that taking any action at all, rather than just kind of sitting back and watching what's happening so fast, uh, winds up being kind of a dumb move. But it's really hard to know that kind of at that moment. Yeah. As far as Bitcoin ATMs in uh, in kind of malls, you know, you're not the first person who's told me that. And I think that there actually are a lot of these uh, a lot of these Bitcoin ATMs in malls. And a Bitcoin ATM for anyone who isn't familiar with what we're talking about here, like it it has kind of the form factor of a traditional, you know, like you put in your bank card, you get out cash ATM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but but really what you're actually doing is you put in your cash or you put in your, you know, your credit card and then you get out some Bitcoin. And I think they actually don't even accept credit cards. I think it's just pit. It's just cash and just Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a lot like cash, actually, which is that like if you spend money with a credit card, what you're effectively doing actually is you're promising someone my bank is going to pay you this money. Right. But then your bank has to actually go through and do it. And throughout cryptocurrency's history, banks haven't really been that excited about that whole thing. Instead, <laughs> they've been like, yeah, actually, no, we're not going to pay you. Uh, and then 
that person still has the Bitcoin that they got. So it's meant that it's been very challenging. And that's kind of mm. where Bitcoin ATMs came about in the first place is back in the very early days, back in 2012, 2013, when I was kind of just getting to know the space, the way that people traded this stuff was in person, right? You'd like go to a park. There was this, uh, you know, in both San Francisco and, um, and New York, there were these gatherings that would happen on a weekly basis where you'd have, you know, 100 or 200 people who would show up and basically just do hand to hand trades of this stuff because it was really the only way to do it. Uh, but these days, things are much, much different. There yeah. are tons of sort of regulated exchanges that are out there. And on the one hand, it's a lot less private, right? Because now Coinbase or any other exchange, Gemini, uh, you know, they need to know who you are to make sure you're not doing something with money laundering. But at the same time, just the level of convenience and being able to hook it up to your bank account, man, it's night and day from when we, from where we started. That is, and you know what? Here's why I wanted to talk to you so much because I get the feeling that this entire conversation is just going to be revelation after revelation and just so much learning. And I'm going to love every second of this. That is, that is well, absolutely. Flattery will get you anywhere with me. <laughs> and when you think about it, like I don't. If I wanted to buy Bitcoin like right now, I honestly wouldn't even know the first place to start. But it sounds like, but it also sounds like a Bitcoin ATM might be something for like existing users. Like I don't think I could walk up to a Bitcoin ATM and just buy some Bitcoin. I would need to like set up accounts and stuff like that. Isn't that right? Well, it depends on the Bitcoin ATM that you're talking about. They have different ways that they work. But again, like I haven't paid attention to this category in like three or four years. Okay. So I assume a lot's changed. But what it used to be is that you would actually get like a paper receipt. Oh, and that okay. receipt would actually have the credentials that would allow you to, to then claim your Bitcoin and move them to whatever account you wanted kind of oh, after okay. the fact. Right. So yeah, so in theory, these are very, very accessible ways to do it. But I mean, I remember even back, you know, in the time that I was paying attention to it, there was a lot of concern about sort of uh, you know, like the limitations around how much can you sell to a person? You know, how do you make sure that you're not selling too much if you're only accepting cash, right? Because it's not like the cash has someone's name written on it. And I remember uh, one one of them, I don't remember what it was called, like Robo Penny or something like that. Robo Advice. I don't I don't know. Yeah. It was some type of Bitcoin ATM. But like they had this really interesting tech where like you would actually put your hand on the ATM and it would scan the veins inside your hand okay. and then it would create a profile for you that would not have a name attached to it, but would have the pattern of veins inside your hand huh, um, as right. sort of the way to identify you. So it was a really cool kind of way to, you know, make sure that you're not going over limits while at the same time, uh, you know, uh, you know, trying not to kind of attach identity to who's buying or selling Bitcoin. Because right. a lot of the value of, about Bitcoin, at least for a lot of the people who use it, is that it is a more cash-like or kind of more private form of money. Where like, certainly you can be like, hey, this is my Bitcoin. But if you don't, then it's not necessarily easy for someone to tell. Gotcha. So, uh, let's let's so let's dive into cryptocurrency a little bit. Um, and I just want to start off with kind of like your Superman origin story. Like, how did you get involved in 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 this stuff in, in back in the day? The stuff, yeah, the stuff, the stuff. The stuff. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I'm I'm a prolific podcaster uh, and kind of uh, I like to do what I call journalism where like journalists dare not tread because the technology is just too new and they just don't understand what the heck they're looking at. Okay. Um, and that was kind of how I found my way to cryptocurrency. I had gotten my start doing gaming podcasts, wound up uh, back in 2005, wound up running 
um, actually a, a game modification and uh, a shoutcast community, which is basically like commented games back in 2007 through 2009. Hmm, okay. um, and then I took a break for a while while I kind of actually focused on making some money for a minute doing sales. And then in 2011, I started looking at this thing, Bitcoin, and was like, oh, that's definitely not going to work. Like, it's a nice <laughs> idea, but there's zero chance that something like this actually succeeds. And so... I, uh, you know, but at the same time, I, it had become obvious to me kind of over the course of 2008, 2009, 2010, that the way that I thought money worked was not at all the way that money actually works. And that actually I had no idea how money works. And as I came to understand a little bit better about how money does work, I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> like the, the okay. system that we have, right? The system, that the way that it works feels like there is sort of like a fairness and, a, and a, a level playing field. But the reality of it is, is that as you actually start to look at the way the monetary system actually works, it's really, really, really lopsided. Hmm. Okay. Um, and that is in large part because there are dudes who are out there in the world who make decisions about what money's going to do. And like, if these were, you know, like some sort of crazy AI machine or whatever that like has no personal interests outside of, you know, doing the right thing forever always, then money would be fine and we would have very stable money. But in practice, what happens is that uh, control over sort of monetary policy is a really, really useful way to control people's perceptions of reality. Okay, yeah. Um, and and the, the hard part about reality, of course, is that you can't control reality. Reality is the sum of like a bazillion actions, you know, done by billions and billions of people independent of each other that collectively forms kind of the reality that we live in. Mm -hmm. And uh, and money is not like that. Money is like, here's 12 dudes who are going to make decisions about what's the right thing to do, except who are those 12 dudes and who exactly, you know, said that they have the right decision-making kind of process right. or are making the right decisions. And, and the whole and, thing with money is, you know, it, it's basically just an assigned value that everybody generally accepts, but there, there's, you're right, there's probably people at the top who ultimately decide, here's what people are going to accept. And so, and so, yeah, you're right. Like, who are those people and why do they get to make that decision? Right. So uh, I like to think about money systems in general, kind of like languages, right? Which is that, like, if you speak the same language as everybody else, that's a super useful language to speak because everybody speaks it. It's super just like very, very useful yeah. for you to be able to do that. If, if like, but now, so imagine everyone speaks the same language, but then there's a group of people at the top who get to decide what words mean and they start changing what some words mean. Any arbitrary reason why you might want to change the way that people do that, that makes the, the, the language less useful. And it's the same thing with money is that when money just does its thing, then it's just kind of a level playing field where everyone plays by the same rules and can get the same results putting in the same inputs. But at the point that you start making it so that this stuff can change, then the closer you are to knowledge about that change and the closer you are, frankly, to the money in general, the more valuable it is for you and the worse it is for everyone else who's on the outside. Gotcha. And in large part, the way that the money is managed in our world today is like that. It is very, very good for people who are really close to it. And it's very, very bad for the rest of us. Okay. And so that kind of eventually that led me first to, you know, to gold and silver and classical forms of money. Uh, but those all have kind of meaningful problems too, which is that people can lie about them, right? So it's like you can have a gold-backed system and there have been gold-backed systems kind of throughout history. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that you have to trust the people who tell you how much gold is there, right? If that's right. how you're balancing the system, then there's this kind of 
well, here's the perception and then here's reality. And there can be a divergence between these two things. Gotcha. And if you look at cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency is a lot like gold, except that everybody can see how much there is all the time. Mm. And it's not like you can see who has what, right? But just in general, like the rules about how the money works uh, are constantly public. And that, and, and also there, there's no 12 dudes who can just like make changes arbitrarily because they think it's a really good idea this morning when they woke up. Right. Okay. Um, instead, it just is what it is. And it's possible to change the system. But uh, cryptocurrencies are what we call consensus realities which is to say that what most of the network believes to be true is actually true for the entire network. Interesting. Okay. All right. So let's take a high-level view as to like what cryptocurrency is. Like, Let's just look at what cryptocurrency is and kind of how it works, if you could. Yeah. So, so blockchains, which is the technology, the fundamental innovation that, uh, that Bitcoin and most other cryptocurrencies rely on is this blockchain thing. How it works, in my opinion, does not matter to 99.99% of people. What is important to know is that it is a way to track ownership of stuff on the internet without having to trust anyone, uh, you know, to keep those records, basically. Okay. So with Bitcoin... That stuff that you're tracking is money, but it doesn't have to be money, right? It's really useful to be able to know, oh, this is how, you know, uh, there's a, a distributed way to tell who owns what money on the internet, right? You don't necessarily know who the identity is, but you know, without having to go and check with your bank or whatever, that if it looks like there's money there, there's actually money there. Cause this is the system, not just some representation of it. Okay. okay. Uh, so, but, but it's not just about money. I think the actual much more important innovations in the long term are going to come from the ability to actually own stuff on the internet. And so what do I mean by that? Basically, um, so like I listen to a ton of audiobooks. I've been an Audible subscriber for years and years and years, paying them twelve bucks a month or fourteen bucks a month or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every month, I get two or three credits, and with those credits, I can buy with big air quotes an audiobook. In practice, though, I am not actually buying an audiobook. I am getting a license to consume that audiobook myself personally mm-hmm. under very specific circumstances. I'm so, very familiar with what you're talking about. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, like, and you. So like, if you compare that to the internet, well, that's actually normal for the internet. Mm-hmm. But if you compare it to real life, right? Like, well, there's no such thing as a used bookstore for Kindle books, and that right. is because you don't own your Kindle books. You just own a license to consume them. And for the companies that are selling these licenses, it's great because it means that they don't have to compete with any secondary market. It means that if you want to buy this audiobook, well, you have to buy a new one at full price from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also means that. You know, if I buy a song on, you know, Apple, uh, on Apple's music service, right, I can't then go over to uh, Amazon and listen to it there because I didn't buy it from Amazon. I don't own it within their system. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of siloed approach that we have to ownership is A, bad for consumers, uh, costs more and gives you less choice, and B, is really good, at least, you know, they perceive it to be good right now. Uh, for the platforms that actually do the selling, because it means that you can't leave, even if you really, really want to, without right. sacrificing basically all the content that you have there. And so you you take that concept and you say, all right, well, but blockchains are a tool for tracking who owns what on the internet without having to trust a company. And suddenly that entire rationale for doing things like that falls apart. 
Enjoying this interview? Did you know that there are over 10 more minutes of time where we talk that ended up on the bonus version? The full interview is available to all of my patrons right now over at patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. For as little as $2 per month, you can get in on the ground floor of this podcast and help support the show. Plus, you'll get additional benefits like access to my Discord, early podcasts, bonus live shows, and so much more. Just go to patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. That's patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. And if you don't want to be a patron, that's okay too. Full interviews become available at the beginning of each new month. So for example, trimmed interviews in January will have the full versions on February 1st. I don't want you to miss out. Just head over to patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt and you can listen to the full interviews even if you don't subscribe because I still want you to love the show. There are more great options for helping me out at benefitofadoubt.com slash support. That's benefitofthedoubt.com slash support. You'll get a list of all my affiliations and monetization options all wrapped up in a neat little package at benefitofadoubt.com slash support. I hope you visit. I hope you take in some full interviews. And as always, I thank you for listening. So I want to talk for a bit. And and, and again, I know we have a hard stop. So I want to get into this now because I don't want to run out of time. So is is cryptocurrency, is that a currency or is it an investment or is it both? And like, what's driving the value of of Bitcoin? Because literally every Bitcoin article that I have ever read always has a leader image of a roller coaster, which <laughs> I find to be absolutely hilarious. So like, what is driving that? Because it kind of sounds like, if, if, if you'll if you don't mind, it kind of sounds like with the with the way Bitcoin's value has, it seems like it's progressively increased over the past several years. Um, but there have been precipitous drops as well, kind mm-hmm. of like an investment, kind of like cow futures. I don't know what cow futures are, but just, <laughs> I've heard the term. So it's I know it's a lot more volatile than cow futures. <laughs> right. And so like, but my point is, is like, you know, when you're talking about those 12 dudes that are deci- making decisions, it kind of almost sounds like there's some type of mechanism, whether that's investors or whether that's, you know, like a stock market exchange or something like that. It almost sounds like that there are 12 dudes involved somewhere when it comes to Bitcoin's value, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I do. So okay. I'm, I'm going to answer this question just th- through the lens of Bitcoin to keep it simple. That's probably um, the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just uh, di- diverging from that for just a second, cryptocurrency is actually a bit of a legacy name that was associated with the space in general at a time when we thought that everything was going to be like Bitcoin. Okay. And, you know, there are thousands and thousands of different cryptocurrency projects out there. Uh, and the reality of it is, is that none of them have really succeeded ever in surpassing or even really getting close to doing what Bitcoin does for a couple of reasons that we don't necessarily need to go into here. Okay. Um, as far as what drives the price, it's actually a bunch of things. It's 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 interesting, right? When you ha- when you're talking about twelve dudes controlling money, right? Those twelve dudes are the only people who can control it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if you look at the way that the stock market trades right now. It's basically entirely going up because from a monetary policy perspective, the United States, uh, with the way it's managing the dollar and with the way it's managing uh, at the Federal Reserve, is causing that. They're, they're an active buyer in the markets. Uh, this is not unique to the United States, but it is somewhat new to the United States. Hmm. Broadly, uh, there are a couple of different narratives that I think are important uh, for your listeners to understand. Okay. Um, one is that in the short term, 
Uh, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin are speculative assets. Very, very, very much so. So they do act a lot like investments. Whether okay. they're a good thing to invest in, different question. But uh, <laughs> but like, uh, you know, within Wall Street, like they've caught, you know, we're in a world right now that's looking for ways for money to make money. <laughs> right. And so Bitcoin has proven to be a pretty good thing for that so far. And over the last three months, we've seen a number of larger public companies who have come out and be like, you know what, we're actually going to take all of our cash. You know, this happened with uh, Michael Saylor's company, a uh, MicroStrategies, a couple of months ago. They took $500 million around and just were like, we're just going to keep it in Bitcoin. And like, that's their entire strategy around it, right? And so then that has a meaningful impact on the market because the market is like, well, but why is this publicly traded company putting $500 million into it? And then what's happened in the months since is the price of Bitcoin has gone up. So they've actually made $80 million in paper profits so far just for having done that. But another thing that happened recently is PayPal came out and announced that they're not only going to allow people to buy and sell Bitcoin through their and a couple of other cryptocurrencies um, through, you know, the PayPal wallet interface, but they're going to let people spend uh, Bitcoin across the Venmo network and across the 26 million merchants um, mm. uh, within that. So again, like I hadn't heard about just, that. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, like uh, the, some of those features have already rolled out, and they're rolling them out in the in the kind of uh, uh, in uh, next year. And part of the reason why they said they're doing that is because central banks and governments around the world are now looking at this technology, you know, this blockchain technology, and saying well, you know what, we could actually use that for our monies. And so the future that we're walking into is one where there will be many, many digital currencies, some of them independent like Bitcoin, some of them government issued like the uh, Chinese Yuan, uh, which has been uh, one of kind of the fastest moving projects. Mm -hmm. And then we'll probably also have corporate currencies too, like Facebook's Libra, which was announced about a year and a half ago and triggered sort of this race by governments to develop uh, you know, their own version of Bitcoin, uh, but then subsequently wasn't really allowed to launch because governments were like, yeah, but you're going to compete with us. So no. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, I, I trust me, my podcast's mission statement is Facebook is a terrible, crappy company run by terrible people. <laughs> so like, I, I did not pass on the opportunity to kind of ha ha at Facebook when that happens. So, uh, but still, I'm, I'm happy that you brought it up because I get to ha ha again. So, but, um, but, but I mean, okay. I think that's one of the lessons that we've learned. And I think it's one of the lessons that'll take a couple years for the rest of the world to learn is that like people are like, oh man, the technology behind Bitcoin is so great, but it's actually that 12 dudes thing, right? right. Like if you take all the technology, but that you've still got 12 dudes or, or any number of dudes for that matter, or even women doing it, right? Um, like it, it doesn't matter because the problem is that they're going to make decisions that they will think are good in the short term, but which over the long term will prove to be more disruptive than they are useful, even if it's a really, really noble goal. And this brings me to, to the kind of the second narrative that is really probably the most important thing to understand about Bitcoin. So Bitcoin by itself is not interesting. Bitcoin <laughs> is only interesting because the rest of the way that we do money is being destroyed and has in large part been destroyed. So if we were in a world where, you know, monetary policy decisions were good and like everyone was happy because equality was very high and just in general, money wasn't being used as a way to kind of give some people an advantage and to screw basically the rest of us, mm -hmm. then nobody would care about Bitcoin because there would be no reason to replace the money or even look for some kind of better alternative. But that is not the world that we live in. The world that we live in is one where in order to, you know, keep the economy afloat when the government chooses to shut down, 
you know, the economy as a result of kind of the COVID stuff, Mm -hmm. like whether or not you think that's a good decision, it was a catastrophic decision for a large, large number of people. So there were winners, right? Like some people who didn't get sick. There were a lot of losers too who had their lives effectively ruined. And the stock market would be just in the, the stock market is a forward-looking pricing mechanism, right? So it looks at the future and it says, what are things going to be worth then? And then it takes that action today so that it can be prepared for it. So if you were looking at our future nine months ago, right? That was not a good future. No, it was not. <laughs> and, and, and the market never really reflected that because the Fed stepped in and used our money as a way to prop things up. And they're continuing to do it today and probably will for a very long time. It's very difficult to stop uh, that sort of activity once you've started it. Right. And so, again, like if there's no counter example, right, if there's no example of how money is being handled poorly then examples of how money is being handled well or an alternative system that could do a better job is just not interesting. And so that's really where we are with cryptocurrency right now is that this was predictable, right? The, the government, uh, the U.S. government at least, has been doing these types of things since 2008, since they started bailing out companies, mm-hmm. since we started seeing this too-big-to-fail push. And it's a trend that was started then, but that has escalated over the last 12 years. So, okay, I know we're we're coming up against the deadline here. So I want to, first of all, um, and I'm, I do the, I'm doing this a little bit earlier than I normally do in an interview because I want to make sure we get this in. But uh, first of all, I want you to let my audience know if they wanted to find you, find your podcast, find anything about you, go ahead and say that. Yeah, sure. So uh, you can find a lot of the podcasts that I work on over at coindesk.com. Just click on the podcast tab up top. And that's, I'm not on a lot of those podcasts. I'm the (laughs) dude who's behind the scenes running the team that's kind of putting them all together. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but you can occasionally find me there. And then I have a show that I've been doing that basically was how I got my start in cryptocurrency, which was formerly called Let's Talk Bitcoin. Um, and these days is called Speaking of Bitcoin due to an excellent trademark dispute. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, and you can find uh, new shows of that over at uh, ltbshow.com or speakingofbitcoin.show, whichever one you prefer. They'll both take you to the anchor page in the same place. We release new episodes on Saturdays, um, and they tend to be about the philosophy or, you know, about a like understanding why a technical feature is kind of meaningful. Um, and I have uh, several co-hosts, uh, Jonathan Mohan, who has been a kind of staple in the crypto space uh, in New York. He set up a number of kind of the first meetup groups and was really just an indispensable part of that early on. Uh, Stephanie Murphy, who uh, I first met uh, doing a therapy show actually for libertarians, huh. which I thought was was very good. And she's a prof- professional voice actor who we really enjoy working with. Nice. And then Andreas M. Antonopoulos, who's one of the premier educators in the space and speakers in the space. Um, he plays the role of our technical expert and tends to answer a lot of our questions that we might otherwise have a hard time understanding. Because I got to tell you, Adam, like I've been in the space a long time. I'm a pretty technical guy. I've done startups and stuff. Mm-hmm. This is complicated. <laughs> this stuff is super complicated. And it's not the philosophy that's complicated, but the technology. It's like if you're someone who wants to go in and start developing, not even like an application on Bitcoin or that uses Bitcoin, but like you want to understand how Bitcoin works so that you can work on kind of like the core engine of the thing, 
then you need to know that. And there are a couple of books out there that Andreas has written nice. um, that uh, that are kind of really worthwhile. But for the vast, vast, vast majority of people, whether you're interested as as an investment or you're interested in it just like out of curiosity, the the philosophy is so much more important to understand than any of the technicals. And it's a lot, a lot easier to kind of wrap your head around. All right. So last question, like how has cryptocurrency and Bitcoin becoming a marketing buzzword right up there with AI and 5G and 8K? <laughs> how has that affected you personally, uh, you know, on a personal level, professional level, and, you know, the content that you've been creating? I think it's great. I mean, like, you know, I, uh, it, sometimes it's very frustrating. Sometimes it, it's very, very frustrating. But mm -hmm. most of the time, it's great. Uh, Bitcoin kind of started off as this thing that, you know, like back in 2013 when I was getting started, like lots of people had Bitcoin and lots of people were talking about Bitcoin on forums and stuff. But it was almost impossible to find like a store where you could spend Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so in the earliest days, Bitcoin was used as a marketing uh, phrase for incredibly small companies. One of the ones that comes to mind that I talk about periodically is um, the Bees Brothers, which was uh, this, uh, I, I forget the, the man's name, but basically he had two sons who, who, you know, raised bees and then they were putting together honey and then they were selling it and some candy like that. And they got huge press out of the fact that they were one of the first companies out there, companies, quote unquote, uh, to accept Bitcoin huh, and, you okay. know, were very successful as a, as a result of it. And then like as the kind of, you know, as a year passed and more and more companies started doing that and they all kind of got this big buzz, the buzz started to die down because it wasn't as special anymore. It was not unusual. Sure. And for, for a long time, it kind of just didn't really matter if you said Bitcoin or not. Right. And now we've kind of come full circle with this PayPal thing, right, where now like Robinhood, which is uh, an investing application, and Square Cash, which is, you know, like a mobile money so uh, solution from uh, uh, Jack Dorsey of Twitter. Yeah. Um, and now most recently, PayPal. It's, it's really interesting. I think we've come full circle, right? Where at the beginning, it was this kind of earned press opportunity for people who had no other advantage. And now it's become something where PayPal is doing this not because they believe that the future is Bitcoin, but because they see that their competitors, their, these other apps out there that do money payments, um, are making so much money and generating so much growth off of people who are interested in it yeah. that they're like, well, well, it's actually we're missing out, right? It's actually a competitive disadvantage for us not to talk about this. So And that's cool. And that allows you the opportunity to talk about it that much more. Well, Adam B. Levine, I very much appreciate you coming on the show. You may not be the president of the internet, but you are the president of crypto podcasting. So thanks again for coming on and telling us all about Bitcoin. And I get the feeling that this is not the last conversation that you and I will have about it. Well, I hope not, Adam. <laughs> So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank Adam B. Levine for coming on and learning us all about cryptocurrency. And I encourage you to check out the longer conversation that we had once it goes public next month or, you know, become a patron because I thank you. I'd also like to thank co-producer Cliff for all of his hard work behind the scenes. But most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs>